Welcome to the Unity Baptist Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway, and I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer brings a kickoff message to a new sermon series entitled Faith Foundations. We begin our journey in the Bible at Acts chapter 2. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. start on turning to our pastor this morning. I trust that you've brought your Bibles. We will use our Bible, by the way, every week. I hope that you have your own copy or you have it digitally. You have, we have copies of the Bible also in front of you here, but you can open up to Acts chapter 2. We're beginning this morning, this is sort of an introductory message, as you, can, as you saw, called Faith's Foundations. This is the foundation of the church. The church, at one point in time, did not exist. I don't know if you know that or not. The church was not a, uh, an eternal uh, establishment of God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church future tense. Then he promises the Holy Spirit that will come and indwell each believer. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that that moment he baptized all believers spiritually into one body, and at that point was birthed the church. We know of that period or that period of time in church history called the day of Pentecost okay and so the church was founded at that time and at that moment of the church's founding we see that God saw fit to give us a list of all the things that the church did I believe that by looking at this list we can learn some things about what the early church did what their priorities were and then we can do some of these things ourselves Okay? And so this is, if you will, just sort of a kickoff message to introduce a series of messages on foundations of our faith. What is the church supposed to look like? We, we talked about what the church is in Revelation. Now in Acts, we're going to see what the church does. What is supposed to occupy our time? Okay, so we're going to find that in Acts chapter 2. But before we begin to jump into these different things that the early church did, you need to understand some things about the book of Acts. Okay, so we you have to remember that Acts, first and foremost, is uh, what we call a, a type of literature in their Bible called historical narrative. The purpose of historical narrative in the Bible is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. What I mean by that is this. Just because we read something happened in the Old Testament or the New Testament in a historical account does not mean that God necessarily is putting his stamp of approval on that. For instance, David, we read in the his historical narratives, David had many wives. Any of you men want to try that? You know, it's in the Bible, sweetheart. You try that with your mate on Valentine's Day and see how far that goes. It's not going to work. See, some things are descriptive. It happened. It wasn't right. The Bible wasn't saying, hey, go and do likewise, but it's sharing what happened. Well, how do we know then what in historical narrative are we supposed to repeat? We're going to see it in the teaching portions of Scripture. In this case, we're going to find some of the things that the church did, and we're going to study these later in the epistles, in the teaching portions of Scripture, which just tells us not so much a historical account of what happened, but what is right and what we should be doing. Also, to understand the book of Acts correctly, we need to understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's best to think of the book of Acts as a bridge, okay? Acts itself is a bridge. Now, we have bridges here in, in Ashland, don't we? You want to get on, uh, you know, Old Ben or whatever his name is, you know, and you're going to cross over from Ashland over to Ohio. Your destination, I'm guessing, was not the bridge. Nobody planned on parking it and just stopping in the middle of the bridge uh, to, to camp out for the night or to roast marshmallows in the middle of the bridge. 
people would have something to say about that. So your destination was never the bridge, but it's necessary to go across the bridge to get where you're going. That's the book of Acts. There's, Acts is a transitional book. There's many different things that was happening at the beginning of Acts that have changed by the time you get to the end of Acts. I'll give you some examples. At the beginning of the uh, book of Acts, you're under the Old Covenant. Remember the old Mosaic covenant? God says, do this and I'll bless you. You do wrong, I'll curse you. Under grace, we come uh, through the book of Acts, we see that now they're under grace. They're under the new covenant where God just simply bestows his blessing on his people because they are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. The new covenant that Jeremiah 31 predicted is now here. So old covenant at the beginning, new covenant later. Under the, uh, at the beginning of Acts, the Jews are meeting in synagogues, and some of them keep meeting in synagogues, but then the church is born, and then people have to find out, well, what is this church? Why should I not be meeting in a synagogue, but rather the church? Okay, at the beginning of Acts, you have Jesus, who's still physically present on earth before he rises, or before he ascends into heaven, and then pretty soon he's gone, and now it's the apostles who are moving on. At the beginning of Acts, you have apostles and prophets, at the end of Acts, you have elders and deacons. You see, Acts is very transitional in its book. You have John's baptism. You have believer's baptism. And so Acts is a timeline, if you will, for the rest of the New Testament. Don't know if you've thought about it that way before. Acts is a timeline for the rest of the New Testament. All the other epistles, barring maybe Revelation, they take place within somewhere in the context of the book of Acts. And so it shows us the progression of how the church is changing from that old system to the new system. That's why I say that Acts is descriptive at times and not prescriptive. Not everything there is necessarily meant to be word for word brought into the church, but we're going to look at the Bible and see what is supposed to be applied by us today and what uh, is something that belonged to that period of time. So I hope you found your way to Acts chapter 2. And beginning in verse 42, we're going to look at 14 things. <laughs> 14 things. Uh, we're just, they're going to be very brief points, by the way. Or we will be here all the way until the Bengals play. So uh, the first thing we see here in the church that we can identify is there was leadership within the church. Verse 42, it says, And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, there's a lot right there in just that one verse. I just want to park here for a minute and say that there was leadership within the church. Now, remember, Acts is transitional. What is the leadership here that I just read? It was apostles, wasn't it? Do we have apostles of Jesus Christ today? We have to answer that question, don't we? Because we have churches here in the United States. In fact, there's a whole movement of churches, if you've heard of it, called the New Apostolic Reformation, which is trying to bring back apostles of Jesus Christ, people who represent Jesus and people who have his sign gifts and people who have their authority, people who can speak prophetic words and give us new words from God. Do we have apostles of Jesus Christ today? No, we do not. Despite what, you know, despite what Bethel, Hillsong, uh, C. Peter Wagner, and uh, you know, some of these other, IHOP, and some of these others that have apostles, we do not have apostles of Jesus Christ today. Now, we have to understand what the word apostle means. The word apostle, apostello, means one who is sent out. When somebody is, you know, is sent out from someone else, they are given their authority and their power. And a good example is, you're at home, you're making dinner, you've got guests who are going to be coming over later, but you forgot milk or something else at the store. So what do you do? You go out and out of your own power, okay, you give your credit card to your very trustworthy teenager, right? Maybe. Uh, but you, let's just say you do that. And your teenager, they go to the store. 
They are sent out by you under your authority with a specific task to do, and they have been given your power to purchase these things and nothing more. Right? And you purchase these things and you come home. That, if you will, is what a, how a sent one functions. If Jesus is the one that sent you out, you are doing his task that he gave you as an apostle, and you have his power and authority to do whatever he wishes. You carry God's ATM card. And so you can do what Jesus did as an apostle. You could raise the dead. You could uh, heal people, not just from indigestion, but you could heal the lame. Okay, you could heal those missing limbs or whatever. I mean, you could do uh, the amazing things that Jesus did because you were sent out by Jesus with his power. Now, I do want to bring this out just as a point of clarification. There are still others in the Bible who are called apostles who are not apostles of Jesus Christ. Let's be clear. The word apostello just means sent out. There are some people who are sent out by the church, though, that represent the church, and they possess the church's power. Does the church, can the church raise the dead? No, they can't. What can the church do? They can unlock the keys to the kingdom. That's what Jesus said he was going to give Peter. Remember, he says that uh, to you is given the keys of the kingdom, what you loose in heaven, loose on earth. All that's talking about is he has given us the gospel to open up the doors of heaven for people. And we de can declare people bound or loosed in their sins based upon their testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the power that the church has been given. And we send people out from the church with the gospel into all the world, right? But what do we call them today? We call them missionaries. Okay, we don't use the term apostle, even though it's technically true. Uh, they're a sent out one of the church, but it makes it confusing. So we just call them missionaries. And so uh, to be apostle of Jesus Christ, actually, there were qualifications. I don't know if you know that. So if anyone today is claiming to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, I don't see any here today. But if you were, you would have to fit the qualifications that were found in the first chapter of Acts in verses 21 to 22. It says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus Christ went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men be must become with us an eyewitness to his resurrection. So, do we have apostles of Jesus Christ today? No. Why not? Acts 1. If you're an apostle sent out by Jesus with his ATM card and his power, how old should they be? I mean, we got Yoda walking around here. I mean, they'd be at 2,000 years old. You better check their birth certificate. We have no apostles of Jesus today because there are the qualifications. They needed to be physically present with Jesus, sent out by Jesus in an eyewitness unto his resurrection. So no, we don't have those today. But what do we have? We still have church leadership in the church, don't we? As we go through Acts, we see that there are elders given in the church, people who are specifically set apart and designated who have uh, speaking gifts, leading gifts. And we have those who, on the other side of the spectrum, have these serving gifts, and we set them apart for service. We call them deacons. Okay? And those are, the leader, those are the leaders and examples, the officially designated people of the church that we have today. So that is how we apply it today. We still have church leadership, but through the book of Acts, we see it transitioning. Number two, we see that there was biblical preaching, teaching, and discipleship. That's pretty clear and obvious, but it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So they devoted themselves to their authorities' teaching. Now, the apostles' teaching, obviously, is the Bible. They, you know, God used the apostles to write the Bible. Jesus promised in John 16, there's more that I have to tell you, but you cannot bear it now, but basically, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he will guide you, apostles, in all truth. Which, by the way, answers the question why we don't have book 67. By the way, there's only 66 books in the Bible. We don't have book 67. Okay, the Mormons may try to tell you 
Wouldn't it be nice if there was another testament of Jesus Christ? Well, there's not. How do we know? Because Jesus gave the authority to the apostle and apostolic designees to write the rest of the scripture. After that's done, the Bible's complete. So because we don't have apostles of Jesus Christ today, we also have no more scripture being given to us. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They preached the word. And then they taught in smaller groups. And then they met individually for discipleship. What does that sound like to anybody here? Does that remind anybody of what we've been describing as the unity funnel, please, on the screen? Uh, We have the unity funnel here that we're describing. Uh, where we have big church. That's right now. That's where we preach the word of God. And friends, the day that I stop preaching the word of God and I just start preaching my opinions and telling stories, you need to start looking for another person to replace me. And I, I mean that with all sincerity. The moment we stop expositing the word of God, I need to be gone. And anybody else in the future, they need to be gone because we preach the word of God. We do that in big church. We make announcements. We organize within the context of big church. But friends, this is only one of the three dimensions. If you want to do church like the early church did, uh, we, we also gather into smaller groups. This is very different from big church. Now we got smaller groups, anywhere from you know, five to 15 people or whatever, and you meet together, we put you by age groups so that you can find friends and peers of your own stage of life so that you can grow and do life together. In these small groups that meet on Sunday mornings, or could meet any other time in the week, but that meet on Sunday mornings, we also, it's a time where I'm not just preaching at you, right? Your Sunday school teachers, Sunday school teachers, are you listening? Everybody who teaches Sunday school, this is not a time that you preach the word. You're not just talking the whole time. In, within our small groups, your goal is to ask questions to draw the answers out of your student. You're trying to guide them in the truth. You're trying to help them discover the truth. You want your students to talk back to you so that you understand what they know. And so we have small groups for that purpose. But now we have D groups. Say, how is that any different from the the small groups? Well, it's very different. First of all, they're much smaller. We're talking one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three type of scenarios. Much more intimate, much more personal. You can get much deeper with that individual. It's a place of accountability and true discipleship where we equip you with the specific skills for the Christian life. And in the, in the D groups, we follow not an age group and co-ed model. We follow a Titus II model. Older men teaching younger men. Older women teaching younger women. So we have men only with men, women only with women. We don't want you getting close and intimate with people who are not your wife or not your husband. So men with men, women with women. And then we, have, we intentionally mix older and younger. Please hear me say that. As we are starting D groups here uh, very, very shortly in the next week or so, Make sure your group is not just the 27 Yankees over here with, you know, let's say, you know, we got all the deacons in one group, we got all the staff in one group, and then we have all the new Christians in one group. That doesn't work. We got to mix together our maturities and our ages. We need to have older with younger, younger with older. And that's what D groups are for. And you know what? This follows an early church model. The early church, let me just break it down to you how they met. The early church met one time a week for big group service. Nobody's gasping with heresy yet. Church only met one time a week for big group service, and it wasn't right now. It wasn't Sunday morning. It was Sunday night because a lot of them still had to work. You met one time a week for big group service. Then what did they do? They would meet together in the houses. We just read that here, or we're going to see a little bit more of that. They met in their homes. Paul said in Acts 20.20, he says, I was faithful to teach you both publicly and then how? 
house to house. See, it wasn't ever just meant to be big church, big church, big church, big church, big church, big church, go home. It was meant to be big church. Now you get out there with people your age. And then beyond that, we see that people were going out into the temple they're, uh, and they're into the marketplace and they're hunting each other down for one-on-one, one-on-two type of relationships for that fellowship, for that intimacy, for that discipleship. What does that sound like? Do you see where we're going here? We're trying to become more of a New Testament model church. Why? Because if we don't follow more of what God did in the early church, we're not going to get what the early church got. We're not going to see people getting saved. We're not going to see people truly being discipled. We're just going to be a religious organization. I didn't come here to do that, and I don't think you guys really deep down want that either. And so the the early church, they focused on biblical teaching, preaching, and discipleship. Well, number three, they focused on biblical church ordinances. A church ordinance is just a command given by Jesus. It's a religious, for lack of a better word, just a religious thing that we do that we're commanded to do to remember something. They're symbolic acts, and they are what? The Lord's Supper and baptism. Now here, we only see the the Lord's Supper portion of it. He says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, just generically speaking, the breaking of bread here, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. Later, when we talk about breaking bread in homes, that's literally talking about passing a loaf of bread and we're eating dinner together. But here, they were were devoted to the breaking of bread, which was just a, a way of their saying the Lord's Supper. They were careful and devoted to make sure we do the Lord's Supper regularly, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, as often as you eat of it. And so they did that often, and by extension, we understand, they also did baptism. How do we know? Because in the previous sermon in Acts 2.42, Peter just said, repent and be baptized. Okay, so it may not be listed in this list, but we, we just saw Peter teaching this very church, you need to be baptized. Number four, they were devoted to, it says, devoted to the prayers. To be devoted to something, by the way, this is, uh, all these things are something the church was devoted to. They made sure that these things were in place. Whatever the church did, they want to make sure that these things we're about to list, they were there first. And if something else doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. It's like a moving truck. Those of you who have moved, what do you put in first? You put in the kids' stuffed animals? You put in the Hot Wheels? No, you don't do that. You put in the dressers. You put in the mattresses. You put the biggest things first, and then you find room for the little things, and then some of the things that don't fit, you throw it in the trash when the kids aren't looking. And that's that's how we move. And that's how we do church, friends. We take these 14 things, and we put these big things into the church first. And then we stuff in where we can some of these other little things. But the big things have to come first. And so they devoted themselves to prayer. They understood that this church is a work of God. I can't do this. If the church is something that man can build, it's a man-made production, it will produce man-made results. We don't want that. We want divine, godly results. Because if God doesn't build the church, it's not a church at all. Jesus told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. When Jesus says, I will build my church, it means we're going to do things God's way. We're going to use God's wisdom. We're going to use God's power. And God's power comes through prayer. James says, if we don't ask and pray, and we don't ask and pray in faith, let that man not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because John 15 tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not used to hearing that. We're we're used to being told that we're Americans and we can do anything we want. If you just dream it, you can do it. You know, shoot for the stars, do anything you want. Well, that doesn't work in ministry. The only way we're going to see anything 
of significance happen as a church is if God is the one who started it by doing it God's way and through God's power. And for that, we seek out God deeply in prayer. We have prayer warriors out here who seek God in prayer all week long. On Wednesdays, we devote that to a time on prayer, and then we pray together. Prayer has to be the center and heart of all that we do. Number five, we see that they had a fear of God, a high view of God. It says, an awe came upon every soul. Awe is this understanding that they had a reverence for God. They knew that he exists, right? In Hebrews 11, 6, it talks about how with faith, it's impo- without faith, it's impossible to please God. They must first believe that he is. We have to believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Fear of God means that we have an understanding that God is out there. He sees all that we do. He is all-powerful. He, he moves in and out of our life. That God exists. He's out there. And because he exists, he is our creator. Because he's our creator, we're accountable to him. That we're responsible to live in a way that pleases God. Okay? And so that creates a sense of, if you will, a godly fear. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you have every right to fear God. The most terrifying thing in the universe is not a devil. It's not a demon. The most terrifying thing in the universe is to be in the presence of white, hot holiness of God and to be lost in your sins without Jesus. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you don't know Jesus here today, friends, I beg of you. The most loving thing I can tell you is you need to seek him today. God exists, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seek him today, the Bible says, while he may be found. What does that imply? There's a day that you won't be able to find him. There's going to be a day it's going to be too late. Today, the Bible says, is the acceptable day of salvation. We have to have an awe, a reverence, a fear of God. The Jews were, had such a reverence for God. They wouldn't even say his, his full legal name, if you will. He, Jehovah, this is not a name that they would use. Now, people today, they go to church, they go on Facebook, and they'll, they'll use God's name in all kinds of ways. You know, oh, my, and you know how it ends. You know, and they'll just throw it out there just kind of flippantly as an expletive, as a, as a means of surprise or frustration or vulgarity, and we just throw God's name out there like it doesn't matter much. Friends, for the heart that reveres God and has a high view of him, we want to use his name in a, in a holy and revered way because he is a great God. Number six, spiritual gifts were widely being used. It says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let's pause here for just a second. Obviously, this is one of these transitional parts of Acts. I haven't seen too many miracles done by the people in, my, in the churches that I'm a part of. Does it mean that we're not following God? No. It means that we're not in the age of the apostles. Hear me out. I know this, is, this can be a divisive issue, but what does the Bible say? Who is doing the signs and wonders? The apostles. Do we have apostles of Jesus today? No, we do not. Why don't we? You see, Miracles, a lot of times, people who are promoting that we should be seeing more miracles as a regular, everyday part of church worship don't understand that miracles were never normal. The Greek word for miracles is actually semion. We get the word sign or significant. It's something that never happens, so when you see it, you're like, whoa, what is that? They're so important and significant that when it happens, like Jesus, you'll get crowds of thousands and multitudes following him because they've never seen anything like that before. Miracles have never been normal in the church. In fact, I'll give you a little hint here. Outside of God, who can do miracles anytime he wishes, God has only given man the ability to do miracles in three very brief, roughly, you know, 40 to 50 year periods of Earth's history. 
Did you know that? God only gave man the ability to do miracles in three periods of history, and I'm going to show you where they were. One is Moses uh, and Joshua. The next one is Elijah and Elisha. The next one is Jesus and the apostles. Now, what do these three things have in common? Think about it. Each one of them introduced a revelatory period, didn't they? Moses and Joshua, what, what revelatory period did we start there? Where God is revealing new truth to man. It's the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses, they're called. The Pentateuch, okay? So we have the origination of the Bible and then the books of history. It introduced a revelatory period. Then Mo, uh, Elijah and Elisha, what do we have there? We have the revelatory history, a period of the kings and the, and the prophets. Beyond that, we have Jesus and the apostles. What part of the Bible is that? They're giving us the gospels and the rest of the epistles. And the reason God gave man the ability to do miracles is because if I just walk up to Mike and say, hey, Mike, I got book 67, Mike says, prove it to me. And he has every right to ask that because God signifies who are the people giving God's word. If God is giving new word to man, we don't want to follow a cult. We better know that this person's from God. And so God would give these people these signed gifts. And so in their, this particular revelatory period in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, the signs of a true apostle were, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, these signed gifts were meant to signify that these apostles were bringing new scripture. And 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says that these were the signs of a what? A true apostle. Okay, not everybody did signs. It was under apostolic authority that these signs happened. And when the apostles died out, friends, there was no more need for a sign. We weren't getting new scripture beyond John. So how do we apply this then? We do still have spiritual gifts today. You know there's three broad categories of spiritual gifts. You have the sign gifts, which were during the apostolic age, period of time where God was showing you there's more scripture to come. But then there were speaking gifts and serving gifts. Okay, these are all broad categories of gifts. Do we still have speaking and serving gifts today? I hope so. I mean, the answer to that is yes, we do. God has given a spiritual gift to every single person who has the Holy Spirit in them. Did you know that? You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift, at least one. What is a spiritual gift? It's something that is spiritual. It originates from the Spirit of God. It's a gift. It's meant to be given away. It's not meant for you. Hear me say this, spiritual gifts weren't meant to bless you. They're meant to bless other people. The Holy Spirit gave it to you to give away. It's a spiritual fruitcake, right? Something you receive. That you, you're not going to forget that, though, will you? It's something you receive that you intend to give away to other people. You're not going to consume it on yourself. Spiritual gift is a divine enablement. It's not singing. It's not playing piano. It's not your ability to, you know, fix the church and pound a hammer, you know, a spiritual gift are things like mercy, administration, teaching. There's, there's so many different types of those gifts. They're found in four passages in the Bible if you want to study them. It's 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Okay, There's four passages on spiritual gifts. You want to study those, what they are, and how they are used within the church. That's where you go, and we're going to study those. Each one of us has a spiritual gift. So then what does that mean? God has an expectation then that every single believer is using their spiritual gift. God has an expectation that there's no believer in Jesus Christ who's not actively doing something to serve God in utilizing that gift. Number seven, we see generous giving. Verse 44 says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. So what we see here is we had an extremely generous church. By the way, we're not talking about church communism. We're not starting a cult here, okay? This isn't a, a verse supporting communism. Why in particular were they, were they distributing so much at this point in time? Because we had the church, they had thousands and thousands of believers from all over, all in one place, and there's a lot of needs there. So what's our application from that? It's that the church was generous. The church, whenever there was a need in the body of Christ, we met that need. When there was a need in God's house, we met that need. We all give uh, faithfully and sacrificially and cheerfully. Let me just tell you, friends, I'm, I'm not going to be that pastor that guilts you into giving certain amounts and certain percentages at certain times. I'm not going to check up on you. We don't do that here. You give because you want to give. You give because you believe in what God is doing here. You give because it's from your heart. You give not what you must, but what you can because you believe in what God is doing and you want to invest your money on something that far outlasts, you know, that, that Outback Steakhouse dinner that we just had. So that's why we give. And so they were generous givers. We give because this is our family. You know, like in old times when family was suffering and the kids sometimes had to work, Industrial Revolution, and they would work and their money wouldn't go toward buying a new Nintendo Switch. It would go to be to the family because the family needed it. Why do we give here today? Because this is our home. You know, this is, if you will, this is our church family. This is as close to home as we can get until we get to eternity. We, we give because you guys are family to me. Number eight, they were committed to gather together. They didn't just do church on their own by themselves. Look in verse 46, it says, And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So day by day didn't mean that they were having big church services every day of the week. Nobody could do that. But they were every day seeking individuals out for discipleship. They were coming together and they were meeting in homes just throughout the week, they were just excited to spend time together with other believers. What we see here is they were committed to gather. It was an important part of their life. They would push other things aside to make sure that they were a part of this gathering with other believers. They wanted to be with other believers. And so every day they, they would come together and they'd break bread together in their homes, but they did it, they did it faithfully. They didn't let other things get in the way of that. It says, verse uh, number nine, they were committed to intimate fellowship. Verse 46 says that they were breaking bread in their homes. Now, they were, they're coming together, they're discipling together, but they're also eating together, they're fellowshipping together. They were so excited just to spend time with each other. There's an intimate fellowship that's created within a church, and we will do everything we can to help create those intimate bonds and ties. That's why we have things like small groups. It's why we're going to have things like dinners and things together. We do activities together. We want you to be close with other believers. Through the context of those relationships, that's where discipleship relationships begin. We also see number 10, they, had they lived transformed lives. Verse 46 says they received their food with how? Glad and generous hearts. That's what I want to park on there is how they received their food. Not that we receive food. Some of you guys, you wanted to make the point of they ate dinner together a lot. That wasn't the point here. How they received their food. Glad and generous hearts. The fruit of the Spirit was among them. This was not just a religious group of people that did religious things and we genuflect and we get on our knees and amen and we give things and we swing things around. We don't do all that kind of stuff. The church is who you are, okay? As believers, remember, we, it's why we talk about koi discipleship on Sunday evenings, K-O-I. There's three components of healthy discipleship. There's a knowledge that we know. Jesus said, John 8, 32, that you shall know the truth 
that truth will set you free, so that truth is important. The Bible even says, 2 Peter 1, add to your faith knowledge, so knowledge is important, but we don't stop there, do we? We go to obedience, K-O. So O is obedience. We don't just want to be hearers of the word only, but doers. If we're just a hearer, the Bible says we deceive ourselves. So there's certain things that a Christian believer we do. And we're not just going to tell you to do them in this church. We're going to show you how. And the third component is integrity. And this is where a lot of times we miss out. We don't understand that the end goal of discipleship is not a bunch of smart people. It's not a bunch of people who do what we tell them to do, who get active in the church. It's a group of people who are changed from the inside. There's integrity, K-O-I, koi, integrity. That's what we're trying to aim for is people who are Christ-like, people who look and act like Jesus. They're the kind of people you want to be around. We enjoy those people. So they were committed to transformed lives. Verse 47 says they were committed to God-centered worship. It says they spent their time in church praising God. Now, a lot of times we think of singing as just sort of the national anthem of church. It's just kind of what we do to get things started, to get to the main event of the Word of God. Can I tell you that's not true at all? Every bit of what we've done here this morning is significant. Your worship and your praise of God. Uh, Hebrews talks about how we give up uh, a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. What's a sacrifice? It's something you give that's valuable to you, but you give it up to the Lord that he might be pleased with its offering. So sometimes we can come here, you may not feel like singing, but you sing anyway. You've offered up a sacrifice of praise. You've offered up something to God that you know he enjoys, something that he delights in. And so we focus here on God-centered worship. I say that because the stars of the show, it's not Theron, and he'll tell you that too. The star of the show is not our band, even though we love them. It's not the praise team. It's not the choir. The focus is not on man. It's not on people. True worship has to be focused on God. Worship focuses on the worthiness of our God. Anything that we do in the Christian life which takes that attention away from God and puts it on man to lift up man on a pedestal, to worship man, friends, now that's become idolatry. We've got to make sure that God stays the center of our worship. But that when we come together and we sing and we praise God, it's not just something we do. It's not a religious exercise. It's not something we just try to get through. It's something we contemplate what we're doing, and we involve ourselves in singing to God. It's a sacrifice of our praise. Number 12, we're going to see here that the church had unified spirit. Verse 47 says that the church had favor with all the people. This is an interesting word. The word favor here is charis. It's the Greek word for grace. There was grace that God gave them among the people. In a unified church, there will be grace given. God will give you favor with one another, especially when we have grace for one another. Now, what's grace? Those of you who are in Awanas, you know that grace is unmerited favor. It's kindness that you do for other people they didn't have coming. That's one of the marks of a, of a healthy, unified church, is that you're graceful with each other. Something happens you don't like in church. Do we get mad? Do we backbite? Do we slander? No. We have charis. We have grace. We have favor with and for one another. Something happens you don't care about. We just start sowing seeds of discord. Well, did you see how they did that? I didn't like that. Did you, I didn't like that either. Oh, now we're all going to be mad together. There's no grace and favor there. How important is it that a church is unified? I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to keep using this passage 
every day for the next two years until we all have it memorized, okay? Jesus, in his high priestly prayer for us in John chapter 17, what did he pray? Did he pray that this church will have enough money? No. Did he pray that we're going to just get a lot of evangelism done? Not necessarily. What was, his, what was his prayer request? Let's read it together. I do not ask for these only. Jesus is praying, talking about his disciples that are here. He just got done praying for his 12. But he's not just praying for them. He says, but I'm going to pray for those who will believe in me through their, na- uh, uh, through, their na- through their word. Who is it that's going to believe in Jesus through their confessed word? That's going to be you and I. We confess Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, 9. He says, I'm going, he says, my prayer for them is that they may all be one, that they see themselves as a unified body. They do what's best for the body, not just for me. I don't just push in church what's comfortable for me, for what I like, for my preferences, what I enjoy, my traditions. We see ourselves as a unified whole, a church body, and we do what's best for the church body, not just me. That was Jesus' prayer for us. But not just unity like we call unity. He says unity as God defines it. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That he says uh, that they may also be in us. God wants us to be unified as as the Godhead is. You know the Godhead, the triune God. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're equal but separate. He says, that's what I want you to be like. You're equal but separate, but you see yourself as a single entity and you have the unity that God does. Can you imagine reading in the Bible where Jesus walks in and hears the Father slandering the Holy Spirit or slandering Jesus to the Holy Spirit, you'd be like, that's blasphemous to even say. You're exactly right. That's ridiculous. God says he wants it to be that ridiculous that another believer would slander another believer. Why? Because he says we are the body of Christ. When people come in off of the world, they want to see Jesus in here, and they identify that when they see unity and they see love. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. And everyone that knows God loves God, but he that does not love does not know God. One of the evidences that you are still a pagan and a child of hell is that you come to church, you're active, you're religious, but you don't love. Friends, I say that with all the love in my heart because I don't want any of you guys to go to hell. people come in and they want to see the love of Jesus in this church. And I think by and large they do. But Jesus himself said in his prayer, he says, they, want, they ought to be one just as God is amongst himself. Let them be one with each other so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so our unity has a direct impact on our gospel effectiveness. Lost person comes in off the street, they sit in our pews, and they overhear in the lobby somebody backbiting one another. What's their first impression? Oh, the love of God is in this place. I can't wait to return. No, their thought is, who are these hypocrites? But they come in here, and they expect to find hypocrites, but what do they find? They find love and unity. What do they say? The Spirit of God is among these people. Okay? It, he says, we need to be one so that the world believes that you sent me. And so it's not a small matter when we're disunified. It's not just me expressing my opinion. I have the right to talk or I have the right to speak or say my mind. Friends, no, we have the right to do what is loving and beneficial so that our gospel effectiveness is not hindered in the world. And we've got to hold to that. Number 13, we see biblical membership. Verse 47 it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to see here, those who were being saved, it says they weren't just saved and went on their merry way. Well, it's nice to know I'm not going to hell. I'm just going to go live my life. What'd they do? 
They were added to a number. What are we talking about? We're talking about they were added to church membership. They gathered together and committed themselves unto one another. It is a biblical concept. Now, church membership, it's not an elite status. You're not the member of a country club. You're not treated better. You're not... Um, we don't, we don't have, like, the sections up here at the front zoned off for members only. Uh, you don't get first dibs on the meal on the 27th, okay? You don't get first dibs on the meal. It's, it's not an elite thing that we do. What is it? It's a commitment. Membership is a commitment that we know that the church is committing themselves to you and that you're committing yourself to the church to be an obedient believer. We come, we give, we serve, we unite ourselves together so that when we, Bible says, select out from among you elders or deacons or missionaries, who's the you? Somebody that just randomly walked off the street for the first time? Hey, you want to be, be an elder? You want to be a deacon? You want to be a missionary? No, we look amongst our membership. We look amongst the people that we've had personal conversations with. We know you're converted. We know that you're committed. You're walking with God. And so from among them, we select leaders and teachers, and you vote on things. We want to make sure that those who are born again are the ones doing the influencing on the church, which is why we have church membership. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but what I want to focus on is this. Christians weren't meant to live apart from other Christians. You see, when God created animals, God also created the church in, he, in his mind, and he knew he was going to use things as illustrations, and God describes us as sheep, doesn't he? He doesn't describe us as a rhinoceros, much as I would like to. Uh, he doesn't describe us as the mountain lions of God or the bears of God. Those are all loners in the animal kingdom. God was selective in calling us sheep. Sheep always gather together in flocks, don't they? Sheep are not meant to be apart. In fact, you want to see, you want to watch National Geographic and watch something get eaten, you want to watch the sheep that's by himself. Sheep are meant to be with other sheep. God created us for this purpose, to be united in a group. But what do we hear often today? I'm spiritual, but I'm just not religious. Or you'll hear them say, I don't believe in organized religion. We hear that a lot, don't we? Now, there's a lot of reasons why they don't believe in organized religion. It, perhaps it's because they belonged to a church one time where they saw disunity, and now they blaspheme the name of God. But friends, we can't say we don't believe in organized religion. Why? Because Jesus created organized religion. You realize that, right? Jesus says, and remember we just mentioned in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I, Jesus, will do what? Build my church. Where did organized religious come from? It wasn't man, it was God. If you're going to be committed and say, I love God, then we also have to be committed and say, I'm going to commit to loving my brother and my neighbor too, which means we're going to be a member of a church. Let me say this clearly. Every mature disciple of Christ is a member of a church. You can't reach full maturity as a disciple apart from yourself because there's 59 one another's in the Bible that we're commanded to do. You cannot do on online church. You can't do watching a video. You gotta be here physically present with people. You cannot be a fully mature believer of Christ and just going out and paddling your canoe saying this is where I feel closest to God. It may be what you enjoy, but it's not what God commands you to do. God created organized religion. Now, does man sometimes throw a wrench in the works and make a mess of it? Yes. But if you're that spiritual, you're the one we need in here. We're supposed to be together as God's children. And it says that they, uh, they were adding to their number daily. Number 14, this is the last one. We're going to finish up. Biblical evangelism and missions. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were 
being saved. You know you have a healthy church when God is giving us spiritual children. When you have a healthy family and they're, you know, a healthy male and a healthy female, right, and they're in marriage, those healthy bodies produce babies. When you can't produce babies, it's because there's something unhealthy in something. And I'm not saying that to bring up more pain for those of you who maybe cannot have children. Our heart goes out to you, and we'll, we're willing to pray with you. We're using it simply as an illustration of the church today. When the church is healthy, we have babies. We have people getting saved. When a church doesn't see people getting saved, there's something unhealthy in the church. We're not sharing the gospel, or we're not unified. God isn't drawing his children to us. Okay, so we have got to, we've got to, we've got to get out there, and we've got to share the gospel to see people saved. What is the Great Commission? I mean, the first word is what? Go! <laughs> Go implies that you're not staying right here. And that is one of the biggest problems of the church uh, coming into this century is we're trying to live off of 1940s and 50s church methodology, what I call Field of Dreams methodology. Y'all remember Field of Dreams, right? Kevin Costner? You got an Iowa farmer, he's out in the field. What's he doing? He's got his field going, but then he hears a voice. Build it and they will come. You know, he's, he's stunned and shocked. Iowa farmers don't usually hear things like that. And so he hears, build it, and they will come. And so what does he do? He plows under his corn, and then all of a sudden, he builds this baseball field in the middle of Iowa. And then you got these old-timey baseball players coming and hitting and playing baseball, and evidently that's heaven. It's playing baseball in a cornfield in Iowa for all eternity. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. I mean, West Virginia is only almost heaven, right? So, anyhow, so where are we going with that? We're on a field of dreams. Field of dreams. Field of dreams missiology is this. Build it and they will come. And you used to be able to build churches like that. You used to back in the 1940s and 50s. These are people, you know, the greatest generation. These are the people that grew up in the Depression. And they went through World War II and the rubber and the steel drives. And they moved on and they just suffered through their life. And they knew objectively man is weak and we need God. And that the church is objectively a good and healthy thing. Do people feel that way today? No, they don't. You used to just be able to build a church and just host services, a whole bunch of services, and people would just show up. Do they do that still? No, they don't. And that's sort of a field of dreams, missiology. If you build it, they will come. Let's just, let's add more services. Well, if that stops working, let's just change the services to what man wants, and let's create the attractional model church. What's wrong with, with this here? Why is the church not growing? It's because most of us are still in field of dreams, which never should have existed. Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples. We can't make disciples just sitting in here. But that's what we've done for so many years. We just plan a whole bunch of services and we wait. We go, well, I hope people come. Boy, and then we just start talking about how wicked this generation is. They, these, these kids weren't growing, they weren't grown up in a home that honored God to begin with. What makes you think they're just gonna walk into the church? They will not. If we keep and maintain Field of Dreams where we just, we just host up this big schedule of events and hope people come, friends, we will deservedly die and God will remove his lampstand from us because we have not obeyed the Great Commission's most fundamental mission, which is go. We got to go where they are. If we don't go, friends, we can't expect them to come. 
If we want to see people saved, we have to treat this church what it was meant to be. It's a family, it's a hospital, it's a, it's a, it's a training center to send you out and I out to equip us. The Bible t- talks about in Ephesians, we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's you. And then we go out into all the world and we bring them in with the gospel. But we don't just try to expect them to come here. What's the greatest hindrance to going and doing evangelism? It's because it's when we have too much to do that requires us to stay. Let me say that again. What hinders us from going? It's when we have too many things scheduled so that it requires us to stay. When we make the measure of your spirituality, did you come to Sunday school, Sunday morning, church training, Sunday night, Wednesday night, church visitation? And we have all these activities that make us so busy in the vortex of church here that there's no way I can go out or I can't work a job or I'll never see my wife. I'll never go out on a date. I can't disciple my own kids. Why? Because I'm too busy with all the traditions that we have heaped on top of the church Church used to be one weekly meeting, meeting in homes and discipleship. That's all it was. We've added so many human traditions, friends. There's no way we have time to go. And I understand. You're thinking, there's no way I have time to keep adding things to my schedule. And you're exactly right. And it's really hard to preach this message unless you realize it's essential to get to the gospel. Friends, stick around. We will train you for, God, for the, how to share the gospel. We're going to be having evangelism training coming up very, very soon uh, toward the end of this month. I pray that you will be there. And more importantly, I pray that as a church, we will get the vision of not just staying and waiting for people to come, but equipping ourselves and going out because we love our neighbors. We love them enough to go where it's uncomfortable and unfamiliar, to bring the gospel, not just to keep it here in our, in our bank vault, but to open up the bank vault and get the gospel out in the community where it can actually do some good and create life in the hearts of people. I pray that that's your desire because I know it's your mind. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that you've given us an opportunity just to do this introduction to the book of Acts, uh, this introduction to what a church is supposed to be and to be doing. Uh, What are the activities of a church? God, I pray that as a church body, you will give us charis. You will give us grace and unity with one another that you will cause our hearts to be broken for the things that break the heart of God, and that is the the lost souls of men, and that we will make disciples together. God, we can't do this apart from your spirit and your power. I pray that you would unify us through your spirit, that you would invigorate us with your spirit, you would enliven us with your spirit. God, I beg of you that you would, that this church would see a harvest of lost souls like we have never seen before, because we will finally take the step of, of leaving our church walls, going out where people live, loving them where they're at, giving them the gospel, God, that they might have the same kind of eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. God, help us to get our priorities straight as a church, to get healthy, not for our own glory, God, but for your own. We ask in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, Click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.